I am Emily Lyons. In 2011, without a high school degree and with no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. Since then, I've built several multi-million dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I'm endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be utterly lifted and shifted by these people too. All inspiring people are inspired people, so get ready to be inspired. So today I'm joined by Daniel Swag. Daniel, welcome. Thank you so much, Emily. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to chat with you. So tell us a bit about you. Well, let's see. I am born and raised in Boulder, Colorado. Father was a Jewish cowboy lawyer who had a penchant for German women. And my my mother was the daughter of a German soldier born in 1944. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I went to a Buddhist preschool just to polish things off. Just to make things real interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I got to go to rodeos with my father, who was affectionately called a loophole by his cowboy friends, whom often he represented. He was a a lawyer, as I said. I kind of grew up going to rodeos, but, you know, one of my first memories, I was about three years old, and I was concerned for the safety of these cows getting electrocuted, these, you know, prods. And I mentioned it, and a woman said to me, essentially, don't worry about it. God made cows for rodeos. And that was kind of an interesting introduction for me to God and rodeos, and I knew that that wasn't quite true. And uh, <laughs> I had a similar thing. I was at a the X, which is a big fair in Toronto and Canada, and all these pigs were crammed into this little thing. And I said something to the lady like that. There's not nearly enough room for those pigs. And she said, "Oh, they're only alive because we bred them. They wouldn't be here. They're here for us." Yeah, it's this commodification, this absolute chattel slavery attitude that we have with these factory farmed quote-unquote animals it's quite literally a hell on earth yeah it is shocking it really is shocking and the thing that i don't get is how people can love one but not the other you know as such an animal lover myself i just it's it's hard for me to grasp that concept yeah i mean you know you i think you have to look at where are the vested interests and you know like what you know what we're told about consuming milk and meat there's much more of a vested interest financially than it relates to the health of us the community or animals more and more we're finding out it's kind of a great lie, you know, we're mm-hmm. lactose intolerant because we're not baby cows. No, yes. Baby. <laughs> Pure and simple. Mm-hmm. Isn't that weird that we drink the milk from another species? Yeah. It, you know, it, we don't wake up and have a cup of breast milk. Right. It's this incredible brainwashing that I feel like most of which has been really laid bare for all to see with the onset of 2020 and this pandemic. It's You're you're vegan, right? I am. You are vegan. How long have you been vegan? Not that long. I've been vegan nine months and I only am shocked and having to have compassion with myself that it's only been that long. I've been, you know, I was clinging to dairy to like Mm. 
you know, milk or something in my coffee and eggs and cheese. And I just didn't get it. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't seeing it. it. It just, my process took a long time. I'd been straddling veganism with vegetarianism, but it just showed me just how strong that grip, that training from our mother culture has on us. Why, what made you finally take the leap to go full vegan? No, it was really a hitting a bottom in sobriety. So you had been an alcoholic? Yeah, I identify as a recovering mm-hmm. alcoholic. I've been sober this time around for two years and nine months as of wow, the 13th. congratulations. Thank you. I finally quit smoking. I weaned myself off of all the medications I was on from my two plus years of surgeries. Can I just jump in there and ask what happened? That was where I first saw you was featured on an Instagram page. Uh, I think a year ago, and the, the image was quite striking. You had an eye patch on, and you could see that you had been in an accident. Yeah, I flipped a car. I lost control of a car at 100 miles an hour in Megalito Canyon in Lompoc, California. Kind of apropos for Fast and the Furious. Wow. That's where that starts, which I never knew until I lived in Lompoc and eventually watched that movie. So that's kind of funny now that I think about it. Mm. It only occurred to me. But in any event, I flipped a car at 100 miles an hour without a seatbelt on. With oh, my gosh. And with a passenger in my car who miraculously was uninjured. I mean. Wow. I'm such a sensitive, soft, empathetic person. My mother and I both are convinced that I would have killed myself had I killed somebody. It would have been game over. You were intoxicated when you crashed. Yep, I was. And I had had a DUI two and a half weeks earlier. (laughs) Wow. I could have been, I mean, it was nothing but a intersection of miracles, really, that happened that November 12, 2017. How badly were you injured? I had what they call facial degloving oh on the gosh. left side of my face, which is what it describes. It's a removal of the skin from the bone. My eye was ruptured. I had just broken nose, fractures in my cheek and my skull, a subdural hematoma. I lost a lot of blood. And after we finished rolling, Jojo, who was in my car, he said, Dan, Dan, I'm okay, I'm okay. How are you? (laughs) And I I remember this. uh, And I said, well, Jojo, I'm not doing very good. I can't see out of my left eye, and I can feel my skull. Um, Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and I I could remember the neighbors coming out. I could remember their faces turning white. (sighs) I can remember standing next to the car, wanting to lay down, standing next to the car with Jojo. He couldn't even look at me. And I was just telling him, like, what's going to go down? The state patrol came because it was a private road. I got into the ambulance, and that was the last I remembered until the next morning. Did you think you were going to die? No. I was strangely... Very calm and very rational. I also believe that it was probably the cocaine that I had been doing in addition to the drinking that may have saved my life. Really? Well, I 
you know, and then the police, they never came. I never saw anything about my wreck in Google. I couldn't find anything. I could have, should have been in a lot more trouble. The only thing I can imagine is the police pulled up my record and saw I just got a DUI. And by the look of my face, they must have just said to themselves, he's got enough to deal with. So after that, you, I guess, had a very long journey. You had something like 12 surgeries? Yeah, kind of lost count. They took me to what ended up being the third hospital. First two hospitals, they pretty much maybe did some imaging and then turned me away. So I took three ambulance rides and they called Dr. Schooler, who's got a plastic surgery office across the street from Cottage Hospital Santa Barbara. And he's like the plastic surgeon there. And he took my case and his partner at the time, Dr. Irvine, whom, you know, when you spend a few years with some doctors, which I had about nine more plus, you get kind of attached. It gets... <laughs> yes. Um, you would for sure, yeah, I can imagine, develop quite a strong relationship had, with them. Uh, my third surgery in the hospital was a three-in-one, was surgery on my eye, surgery to put titanium plates to hold my cheekbone up around wow. my eye socket and to do the graft. And it ended up being, with three different surgeons, ended up being 11 hours 47 minutes and uh i'll tell you what that's uh the closest thing i can describe to time travel is anesthesia and i, I remember yeah. coming out of anesthesia with that one. Oh, do you yeah and about three hours later the only way i can describe it is and i haven't i haven't done dmt but from what i've heard it was i was shown the fabric of my reality where all the phrase are where my work needs to be done and i mean i don't even know how to describe it in words it was such a visual guided tour until everything pinhole to black and i woke up at 3 30 in the morning three and a half hours after i came out of surgery it took about 20 minutes for me to calm down and realize I'm not in some negative feedback loop, Twilight Zone episode <laughs> with no ability to express what I've just experienced to the nurse looking at me. Wow. That was the beginning of a long, a long journey that I'm very grateful is behind me. Yes. How did you find the strength to recover? You know, because you're, you're going into this tragic accident an alcoholic. Right? Did you find no, spirituality? I, I, I've always had Buddhism in my peripheral. I grew up around what are referred to as the Dharma brats. They were the children of the first students of Trungpa Rinpoche who brought Tibetan Buddhism to the West. Oh, wow. For example, my best friend since the first day of first grade, Clay Rose, he's a Dharma brat. Minus the dogma, is especially as of recent a very important practice in my daily life meditation uh, yeah prayer meditation and writing are my triangle of power it keeps me right the days where i'm able to do those three things are much better than the days where i'm not oh my gosh yeah i used to have a bit of a problem with alcohol and substance abuse but i quit yeah in 2011 
I haven't had a drink since. Oh, congratulations. That's Thank awesome. You. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like, why take a depressant? And it, we are already living in a very sick society. So to be normal is a little crazy, you know, and then add a depressant on it. Yes. It's just not a good thing. That's what I was trying to tell a friend the other day. She has a problem with alcohol and she's trying to find a way, you know, during COVID to find help because so many things are closed. But I was saying, you know, because she was saying, well, it's how I cope with things. You know, I'm so depressed and whatever and how I handle things. And I was like, well, if this is not a coping mechanism. It might feel better in that exact moment, but each time you do it, it compounds and it gets worse and worse and worse. Exactly. It is a fierce downward spiral. But to answer your question, how did I get the strength to recover? It was either go to a deeper, darker place, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like, my bottom and sobriety where I went to a deeper, darker place because I can be very stubborn and pain is my greatest motivator. And I might be a little bit masochistic, but (laughs) to recover, to gain any strength and hope to recover, I made a conscious decision to try and have a sense of humor and just humility about it. I mean, I've already lost face all I've got left is to save my ass at this point. You know, I mean, you can choose one or the other, but my choice is made for me. So I was coming to terms with my rearranged face. That took a while. Coming yeah. to terms with vanity. I masked for a while with glasses and a hat. Just to hide the scars. The skin graft is from my thigh. It was quite a large piece. Was, I have about an 18-inch scar. On wow. Top of my left thigh. Oh, my face grows leg hair and gets... No. Yeah. <laughs> and my doctor couldn't believe it. She's like, I don't know why it does that. I'm like, well, yeah, it took... That's um, wild. It took really well. Well, it was as bright white as... It may as well have been my ass, and I'm so glad I have a <laughs> tattoo on my butt so that they couldn't have t- so I didn't end up with ass face. You know, that would have been too much for me to handle, maybe. But no, I'm grateful I don't have my butt on my face. Have you got your? Have you found that your confidence is, has restored? You don't hide anymore, do you? No, I don't hide anymore. I'm pretty proud of my face. I've come to the point where I earned my face and. You know, I came to to a point where I learned that I was actually grateful for the wreck. And and that was maybe wow. Maybe a six, seven month process. But once I got to that place, that's when I began to learn that the key to my happiness is directly correlated to my level of gratitude, which that mm-hmm. is directly correlated to the, my spiritual fitness which Mm -hmm. goes back to those three things i try to do in the morning Mm -hmm. and when i do and much better balance and less reactionary that doesn't mean i don't fall into fear over and over again and you know have to go back to my tools that's just the practice did you find that people were staring at you a lot yeah in the beginning oh yeah that's what makes it so much harder, I find. I grew up with two terminally ill siblings. I had cystic fibrosis. My sister, unfortunately, passed away. But she had a lot of different things. Like she had gone through two double lung transplants and she'd 
have all kinds of things coming out of her. And that used to just be the hardest thing for her. I remember one time she had a tube coming out of her nose that she had to keep in. And she wrapped a scarf all around her face in the summer just because she didn't want people to look at her. She would try to refuse to ever be in a wheelchair because she just didn't want people to stare. It was just something so upsetting. Yeah. They tried to like appease me or make me feel better with a prosthetic eye and that not that had the opposite effect. They tried to restore the ability for my eye to open and shut, but instead mm-hmm. they just opened it because it had been just shut for a while. So now it's just open. I actually just wear this black, it's just a blacked out eye mm-hmm. because I don't need people thinking that I can see. <laughs> I have a large blind spot. I can get kind of claustrophobic in a little party in an apartment or something that I struggle with. I have a little claustrophobia. It's getting better, but I don't need people thinking I can see when I can't. True, yeah. And there's nothing about the left side of my face that looks normal that a prosthetic eye is going to fit. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Fit into it. It just... It doesn't make sense. I don't even wear it. I had read not too long ago that they were very close to making an eye that would replace people that... See if I can pull it up. Yeah. Well, for a while, they were hoping to restore vision to my eye. I'd been seeing lots of eye doctors. Bionic eye. Yeah. I developed glaucoma. And then I had a goat the day afterwards horned me in that eye. I thought it was toast. It actually just lowered my eye pressure. But eventually, I had that eye removed in May of 2019, which was an incredibly painful experience. Oh, my gosh. I don't think it was normal evisceration. Mine was, they had to shoot a nerve block into my severed optic nerve. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and then hours later, I was throwing up and had to go to a hospital just for pain, just to be regulated for pain that night. I was lucky Clay was there visiting me. I think he might have been a little traumatized. Yeah, I can imagine. Sometimes I think, yeah, it's even harder for the people there that are with you, seeing you suffer. They must just be blown away with your recovery. We've had quite a life and he's in recovery as well. And we're both miracles to still be alive and friends and doing our best to walk a different path. I'm so grateful to be where I am today and feeling like I finally found a purpose. And that is the animal sanctuary that you've been working on. Is that correct? Yeah. Which I love because you rescue abused and abandoned farm animals, right? That's the model. And, you know, I got to a point in that bottom I was referring to in sobriety where I was like, okay, what matters to me and it was you know i said to clay all i want to do is grow food and rescue animals i had been managing a cannabis farm in in california (laughs) during my recovery and we had rescue goats pigs and sheep and honestly they were my favorite part of the day (laughs) sometimes so i hand rescued a few baby goats that got rejected by their mothers and Yeah, and I had rescue goats when I was a kid, when I was six. I very much identify with goats. I'm a Capricorn. I'm hard-headed. Oh, interesting. So it's kind of come full circle. And then the veganism came on. My mother went vegan a few years ago. 
And, you know, that process, even during my recovery, I was eating very little meat. And I had gotten to a point where, like, all food was just the whole notion of grocery shopping and everything was just so repulsive to me that I, I went mm. and bought one of these. I think it's called a magic bullet, but it's not a sex toy. It's a blender. <laughs> <laughs> and I just went and bought a bunch of organic fruits and veggies and some good protein. And the doctor did blood work six months earlier and six months later and was like, you know, it's incredible, drastic changes. You know? Wow. That's where I'd been going, and this the whole factory farming, dairy reality, just I'm like, I can't support it anymore. I'd rather be an advocate that rescues, and the animals will do the educating. Their stories will do the educating. And, you know, mm. the quickest way to save the most animals is to have people change their diets. You can save 365 animals a year with a plant-based diet. That's pretty significant. Wow. I'm working, building a dream board with a really diverse group of people, finishing the business plan, working on educational outreach. We're going to be doing permaculture farming and selling organic heirloom, tomatoes, vegetables, and herbs. Wonderful. Uh, to supplement and raise funds to rescue these animals and give them forever homes. We're going to be working with large landowners for charitable land donation type situations. And you know what? I don't think it's outlandish or radical. I think that it's very possible there'll be a next generation of farmers, landowners who, you know what, want to do something different. I fully agree. Yeah. I think so many more people are, are finally opening up to that idea and that notion. And there's a lot more vegan plant-based people coming forward. Yeah, there really are. And, you know, the location in Boulder, my hometown, I don't think could be better. And I think it's kind of the last vanguard within social justice, this abolition of factory farming and where it intersects with other areas of social justice and food and food deserts and nutrition, our relationship to food, our relationship to the earth. I think people are hungry for hope and meaning. And I think that this is a really really opportune time where people are exposed to normal isn't working and mm. you got to come together and do something else because the federal governments and corporations you know they're not going to do it we've got to take the reins. sorry just give me one sec my dog's working i know my cats have been very well behaved <laughs> how many you have two only a little scared to Pancho and Adelita. I got them in Mexico City. Oh, cute. Yeah. That's amazing. And they were rescues? Yep, they were rescues. Got through a friend. I, I lived in Mexico City for about seven months. What did you do there? I was doing market research for an old economics professor of mine on the phone and living in Coyoacan, Mexico City. <laughs> Land of the Coyotes, where Frida Kahlo used to live. Was this after your recovery? No, this was before. Okay. How long had you been suffering with substance abuse? I was pretty precocious in that area. <laughs> Let's just say I just quit smoking cigarettes in February mm -hmm. of 2020. And my first cigarette was... In 1992 with my buddy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I think a year later, I would be like smoking 
pretty regularly. So, When did you start drinking? About the same time. How old were you then? My half-brother used to give me beers to drink out of when I was three. So, I don't, Whoa. Yeah. So 21 years older than me. We're kind of like Cain and Abel, but both alive still. So, yeah, I still have stuff to work on. <laughs> <laughs> so was there any reason that you continued to drink? Were you trying to cope with something? I don't know if I was just... If it was like I was born with the baggage of history, of the Mm. Jewish-German thing, of I don't know if I was just born with a broken heart, but I've just always been super empathetic and just always just knowing that this is not the best we can do as humans. So, you know, I devoured history and world history, World War II, American history, I went to American University, lived in the belly of the beast, worked for the Smithsonian. I've lived all over, done, you know, been a, a yes guy, tried a lot of different things, but grateful to be where I'm at now. It's much better than where I ever was before. Do you find a lot of people come to you asking what to do that are having substance problems? I do. You know, I try to participate in my recovery and talk to other alcoholics on a daily basis, try to be of service to others. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we don't have to do this alone, but at the same time, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make them stop drinking whiskey. That that part's an inside job. That is so true. And I've said that to quite a few friends because they'll come and they'll say that, but then they don't want to actually do it. No, usually they'll feel better and start drinking again and wonder why they came to me in the first place. I get it. I've been there. I don't learn from other people's mistakes. Like I said, pain has been the greatest motivator. I was very lucky. The day after my wreck, I knew my drinking was over. This wasn't my first time in recovery. And the obsession, for the most part, was lifted. I had a gentleman from... But I had a guy from AA who visited me every day when I was in the hospital. My big book he gave me, the one I still use today. I had my home group. I actually still do service work with my home group, my Zoom AA meetings with my home group from California, the Freedom Group. Those people saw me crawl in a few weeks after getting out, you know, after getting out of the hospital. They were there. Not crazy. Some of the things I've heard from people that have tried AA that weren't successful is they didn't like the religious aspect. They found that yeah. hard to connect with. Yeah, and I've been that person until I realized that it's actually it's the mm. spiritual aspect of the program. <laughs> the beautiful thing is it's a God or higher power of each person's own understanding. I think the greater point is that there is a relief when we give our problems and try to be in accord with a power greater than ourselves. Mm -hmm. Because I know that my best thinking got my face ripped off. (laughs) You know, my best thinking is not necessarily the best. For me, my higher power is just love, is like the spirit of, of the earth, of life. It's not a dogmatic thing. Just like my meditation, I choose not to do it with the dogma. I really like Sam Harris's approach and follow mm-hmm. his path daily. 
and it's been a game changer for me. Mm-hmm. That's in accordance with science. Mm-hmm. So that's what I like about Buddhism and meditation is I've always felt like it's the most scientifically accurate of quote religions. Hmm. Um, that's interesting. That's just been my take. I'm less cynical than I used to be in regards to, I guess, my understanding of it and the history of the Abrahamic religions and the relationships that they play in our foreign policy still and geopolitics in general. Mm-hmm. But that's another story. I'm going to have to look more into Buddhism because I always am looking for, you know, I need some sort of supporting evidence, something. And just blind belief, belief of a book somebody wrote. Yeah. With that, it's, you know, with, I'm no expert in Buddhism, but I am familiar with suffering and Buddhism talks a lot about that. And coming to peace with yourself, I find that practice of meditation mm. is deeply gratifying that way. We all have suffering, that's for sure. The biggest, the biggest part is, yeah, is, is I think is being kind and loving as much as we can throughout it. Absolutely. All we can do is shine our light in our little area of the world. And I totally agree. And be kind and loving to one another, to our planet, to the animals. You know, I think we can build a new earth. The new earth animal sanctuary is an ode to Eckhart Tolle. Oh. I've found his books, much like I said with Sam Harris, non-dogmatic and the best. Tolle is really great resource. I haven't read one of his books in years. Actually, I should take some of those out. Yeah, A New Earth. I'm forgetting the name of. He's got some. Yeah, some great books. Where can people find more information about you and about the sanctuary that you're building? At www newearthanimalsanctuary.org. And where can people find you if they want to check you up? I'm on Facebook and Instagram. On Facebook, I'm testing out a name change and taking my mother's maiden name. So you can find me on Facebook right now at Daniel D. Domel. D-O-M-E-L. Interesting. Okay. It's a nice alliteration. And Instagram, you can find me at a underscore feral underscore danimal. Feral danimal. (laughs) I like that. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. You are incredible. Oh, thank you so much, Emily. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you too. 